Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. joined by not one but two fantastic guests, Roxani Ruchas and Fatima Kea, who have been tireless advocates for behavioral science within the UN system and within the UNDP. The topic at hand that we'll be discussing today is how behavioral science can help to accelerate our progress towards the sustainable development goals. So if you're not familiar with the SDGs, do not worry. At the end of the session, you certainly will be. Um, but to put them simply, the, the SDGs are really a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. But I'll let our guests uh, get into that in more depth in just a moment. Uh, Roxani and Fatima, could I ask you both to introduce yourselves and explain how your work touches the sustainable development goals? Thank you so much, Kimberly. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast and, and thanks, uh, thanks so much for having us. Uh, my name is Roxani Rochas. Uh, I work for the United Nations Development Programme, uh, UNDP. Uh, it's one of the largest UN entities. It's present in more than 170 countries around the world. Um, and our mandate is to help eradicate poverty, reduce inequalities and build resilience. Uh, you mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, so for those who are not familiar uh, with the SDGs, uh, there are a set of 17 goals that were adopted by all uh, UN member states uh, back in 2015. And they're basically a vision of how to transform our planet by 2030. And at UNDP, we work across the SDGs, not on any specific one, because uh, we see them as highly interrelated um, and as requiring integrated solutions. Uh, they're also uh, not just for the UN to work towards alone. They really require a whole-of-society approach, including involvement of the private sector. Um, but to, to come back briefly to introducing myself, uh, at UNDP I work at the regional hub for the Arab states, which is based in Jordan. And specifically I work in the regional innovation team. And what we do in innovation um, is, is looking at all sorts of ways of doing and thinking about things differently in sustainable development. Uh, two of those ways that I focus on are futures thinking and behavioral science. Uh, and I consider myself fortunate to be working with wonderful colleagues in our country offices who are doing really exciting work on behavioral science, uh, like Fatima. Thank you, thank you, Roxani. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you for inviting me to take part of this podcast. Um, my name is Fatima Kayek. I work with uh, Roxani in, at UNDP as well, but I'm based in Kuwait. 
Um, I have more than 10 years experience working for international development organizations such as United Nations Development Program and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Uh, my last project with, uh, with UNDP Kuwait was to, um, uh, to manage a project with the General Secretariat for the Supreme Council for Planning and Development, and they, more specifically is, uh, supporting them establishing a Kuwait Public Policy Center, uh, which mandate is to improve uh, uh, policy making and ensure a more evidence-based decisions. And part of this project, and most interesting part, at least for me as a behavioral scientist, is to establish support this establishing uh, the first behavioral insights unit in Kuwait uh, called the Kuwait Policy Appraisal Lab, KPAL. So going back to my behavioral science experience, I'm a, I graduated from London School of Economics and Master's in Behavioral Science. I'm currently also uh, working on as a PhD student, uh, also at LSC in behavioral science, and um, I've well, supported uh, different uh, implementation of different experiments. I co-founded uh, Nudge Lebanon, the first NGO uh, to apply behavioral insights in, in the Middle East. I'm, I'm also involved in uh, supporting the Innovation Lab in uh, in Bahrain and also mentoring them into implementing different kind of uh, behavioral interventions and experience. Yeah, we are so lucky to have you both. I think listening to you here discuss your background, I was um, really struck by how you know global your work is, but also how interdisciplinary, um, you know, from behavioral science to future thinking um, as an approach. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into the conversation with you both. Um, in terms of the sustainable development goals themselves, I'm sure that you you know have seen um, from your own work how far ranging the use cases for behavioral science are. Um, you know, from zero hunger to climate action, um, there's so many different goals that we can be you know working together on um, to to reach that 2030 target. Um, I know that you know to give an applied example on our own team, one of my favorite projects to work on has been with RAP which is a food waste journey here in the UK, um, where together we've redesigned some product packaging to, to make the expiration date more salient um, to extend the perceived freshness of foods. Um, it's just one example of sort of how small changes can really make a big difference in, in changing behavior and, and shifting the way that, that people think in the day to day. Um, I'd love to hear from both of you what some of the favorite case studies that you've either worked on or come across are that you've been most inspired by in this space. So on my side, uh, at the moment, I'm really excited about a project I'm working on with 10 of our country offices in the Arab states. Uh, it's in partnership with the Behavioral Insights team. Uh, UNDP does run a lot of projects uh, supporting youth and women's entrepreneurship. So what we're doing is working through those projects to understand the behaviors that are linked to successful entrepreneurship. Uh, so those could be, for example, uh, attending and following through um, with an entrepreneurship training or incubation program, could be opening a bank account or using mobile money services or registering a business. Um, so we've looked at all the biases and barriers linked to those behaviors, or at least some of them, uh, and we're now in the process of designing solutions to those. Um, so the country office colleagues will be running uh, pilot experiments in the next few months, uh, and then we're looking at compiling the lessons learned and the tools we've been using for the benefit of others also, because uh, it seems this, uh, this is a really uh, underexplored area of work. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I think that it's it's really powerful when you're able to make you know, specific behaviors explicit and to encourage them and, and to begin to build momentum and social norms um, sort of around that direction. Um, so it's great to hear you you work in that in the entrepreneurial space. Um, you know, in in all of this, you know, project work that you both have explored, um, what have um, what does incorporating behavioral science explicitly as a discipline mean to you? Well, maybe to jump in on this one, um, given the complex challenges that we work on in sustainable development, sometimes it's easier to assume uh, based on our expertise that we know what will be impactful. Um, and so the value of behavioral science for us, I think, um, lies in testing these assumptions. Um, but it's, it's really a complementary approach to the more traditional and structural work that we typically do. Uh, it's essentially a way of enhancing our programming. And we do find that it can be much more impactful to apply behavioral science within existing projects or in the design of new ones than to apply it in a more self-standing way. Uh, so in addition to youth entrepreneurship, which I mentioned earlier, um, other applications we've seen across UNDP uh, have been in areas like waste management. Fatima mentioned the recycling work they've done in Kuwait, uh, in energy, in agriculture, in universal basic income, public administration, preventing violent extremism, um, taxation, gender-based violence, health, employment, um, you know, the list goes on. Uh, and increasingly, I think uh, it's also going to be applied in our internal administrative processes. Yeah, just to add to what Roxani was mentioning, so the first point I wanted to say is also behavioral, I see behavioral science discipline as a complementary tool, and especially when used properly and when it complements the structural uh, interventions and the traditional tools to, to problem solving. So when you embed behavioral science as well, you would reach a holistic solution. So I just want to emphasize the complementary role of uh, behavioral insights. And the second thing is that behavioral science would bring on the table is evidence-based and hard data. So that's not what I think works or what you think works. It's what was tested on, on people. And then the third thing is that context matters. And this is the first thing I learned as a behavioral scientist, that context matters. So what works maybe in, in the UK might not really work in the US. And I've seen this when I supported implementing a big um, RCT with Nudge Lebanon. It was the first experiment in Lebanon to reduce energy, to increase, sorry, to increase the, uh, the payment of energy bills on time. And we tried to also replicate what the UK did in terms of social norms and telling people uh, a percentage of people around in their neighborhood that are paying their taxes on time. So they're paying their energy bills on time. But guess, guess what? This It worked, but not as much as the ego treatment worked. So when we told people uh, you have to be a good Lebanese citizen and pay your energy bills on time, it really increased by a higher percentage point uh, the amount of uh, of. Uh, uh, the, the, the might of revenue in terms of energy bills. So uh, context matters and uh, testing, experimenting, replicating to test, learn and adapt is really key when it comes to applying behavioral insights into what we do in, in like UNDP and international development organizations. So um, yeah, and third thing, it's behavioral science is not only about nudging. So it's not just 
intervening and doing a behavioral intervention, it's also better understanding the challenge and behavioral diagnosis and behaviorally informing a strategy is very important and is, 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 is an important aspect when it comes to applying behavioral insights. So uh, uh, we tend to just think that behavioral science is just nudging and changing behavior, but it's more also about understanding better the challenge. Yeah, I think that uh, recontextualizing the challenge through behavioral science is like one of the greatest value adds that we can contribute. And it is complementary to different approaches. You know, you can layer the lens of psychology with layering the lens of economics, with systems thinking, um, with legislation to, to tackle some of these very large systemic issues. Uh, but I think something that you also tapped on, both of you, is that you know, we can't solve these problems um, alone, you know, even though every problem has people at the center of it um, and behavior is important and understanding the context is important. Um, we can't necessarily tackle these larger structural challenges through nudging um, just by itself. Um, and you all you know, have been a real advocates for being about science within a larger multilateral institution. I would love to, to learn from you sort of what that has been like um, and also, if you have any lessons for for the audience about how to um, to present and integrate behavioral sciences approach within another organization that might have varying degrees of familiarity with it, yeah, I would I would love to share the experience of Kuwait in establishing its first behavioral insights unit, KPAL, and it was quite interesting in terms of the way and uh, with the process of establishing the unit. So we started first uh, in building the institutional setup. So we looked at what other nudge units are doing. We benchmarked with 15 other nudge units around the world, started looking at their vision, mission, strategy, and we informed what KPAL would be doing. So we, we set the mission, the strategic direction, the objectives. Uh, we looked at the lessons learned from other experiences. So we reached out to other nudge units, and then we put the governance and operating model and, and setting up institutionally the behavioral insight unit before applying our experimenting is very important because it's a new concept, it's a new field, it's untapped. The concept of changing behavior and running experiments on real people is not yet there. So so starting by putting the like the institutional ground was very, very important and I think it's a big lesson learned. Lesson learned. The second thing is the second step was really to look at the current policies and the current national development plan and try to look at which policies or which challenge have a behavioral root. And uh, so we try to put our behavioral lens on and see what problem or what policy have a behavioral root and try to see from other experiences around the world what kind of experiments could be done. And so we came up with four policy agendas for four different policy areas like education, energy and environment, health and economic uh, empowerment. And we presented to the government different types of policy interventions for every policy challenge. And by, while we were supporting the institutional setup and the policy agenda development, we did a third thing, which is capacity building. And I cannot emphasize enough the importance of building capacity at this stage while building the, the nudge unit, because you cannot start establish running experiments without the help of local partners and partnering with uh, government agencies, with NGOs, with CSOs and other partners. So 
you cannot do that without building their capacity of what behavioral sciences and what behavioral insights and what does experimentation look like. So we did this with three different, um, maybe three different ways. First, we literally went to government agencies. Uh, we trained KPAL staff. KPAL staff went there and ran workshop for government uh, public officials working for different government agencies, try to tell them more about what behavioral insights is, uh, how to run experiment, what is needed. At the same time, we also uh, went to academia and we partnered with the American University of Kuwait and it gave us access also to interns and to young uh, students. So first we ticked the box in terms of building capacities of young people studying economics and public policy at the university. And second, they helped us. Uh, so we mentored them in running the different experiments. So it was a very successful course and it took like uh, the whole fall semester at AUK to really deliver the academic course. And the third thing is we... KPAL supported other country offices at UNDP with the help of Jennifer and Roxani from the Regional Bureau in training and also building capacity in behavioral science. So also we supported uh, the Innovation Lab in Bahrain, as I mentioned earlier, and also implementing different kind of uh, experiments and training their, their team on what behavioral insights is and how to apply it. So I, I can't emphasize enough building capacity and local partnerships and building the right collaborations and partnerships to in order for us to go to the third step and pilot experiment. Absolutely. I can imagine also that in that building capacity, you're increasing the ownership of all of these different stakeholders in the process and you're building a partner in that process as well. Does that resonate with your experience, Roxanne? Definitely. Um, from my perspective, in terms of what it takes to mainstream BSI across a large organization like UNDP, um, it's it's not easy. Um, partly, I think it's because although people do love novelty on the one hand, uh, on the other hand, status quo bias does make people averse to, to innovation. So ironically, when we label behavioral science as innovative, um, it might actually be, be a little counterproductive. Um, we do have a large network of so-called accelerator labs at UNDP. Um, they're found in 91 of our country offices, uh, and their task is to generate learning on what works to accelerate sustainable development. Uh, and they've been given a lot of freedom to experiment and to fail and to iterate. Um, so they've been a real asset in spreading the use of behavioral science at UNDP. Um, but if I were to um, advise um, somebody in trying to introduce behavioral science into team or organization for the first time, um, I think three things come to mind. Um, the first is sort of coming back to what Fatima was talking about before. Um, it's that good problem definition is everything. Uh, and framing a behavioral problem in the right way can be one of the most time consuming uh, parts of the process. Um, so while there's uh, really a lot of great examples of applications of BSI, like, um, like Fatima mentioned, it's not good enough to take a good practice um, from somewhere and apply it elsewhere, uh, because although a problem might manifest itself in the same way in different places, the underlying causes can look very different, particularly um, between develop, developed and, and more developing countries. The second piece of advice um, 
which be that when it comes to behavior, even small things can build up to have quite, um, quite an impact. And even system level issues can be broken down into smaller parts. Uh, so there can be a return on investment uh, in investing time on fixing what might seem like a small uh, behavioral challenge at the outset. Um, and the third advice, uh, whether an experiment succeeds or fails, um, I would recommend to make use um, of the lessons learned and to loop them into other parts of the organization um, or into the design of future projects, ideally, as well. That's really great advice. In, in the spirit of you know, breaking down a behavioral challenge into its component parts and really approaching it with... Um, you know, with experimentation. Um, I know that Roxanne, you've recently released a report on how behavioral science can help to tackle violent extremism. I'd love to hear some of the take, main takeaways for you in writing this piece of research, maybe even as you know, a, an illustrative example of, you know, all of, all of the great um, pieces of advice that you've shared with us so far today. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um... I think the prevention of violent extremism is probably hands down the most complex issue we've tried to apply behavioral science to. Um, it's work that started back in 2018 um, with Nudge Lebanon. As Fatima mentioned, it's a B-Sign nonprofit uh, that's based in the region. Um, our country offices in Sudan and Yemen ran the first experiments in this area. So in Sudan, the idea was to look at building resilience to radicalization among prison populations by incorporating values affirmation exercises through the prison education system. And in Yemen, they looked at increasing attendance in psychosocial support programs. And more recently, we've seen this work expanding to our offices in Pakistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, so on the basis of all these experiences, as you mentioned, we've recently published this step-by-step -step guidance note on how to apply behavioral science to PV challenges. And there's a lot of takeaways. Uh, I would encourage you to take a look at the report. Uh, but one basic principle that I, you might find unsurprising um, is that BI interventions are probably most impactful in the early stages of engagement in, in PVE. So the window does narrow somewhat um, when it comes to more actively engaged individuals. Essentially, prevention is, is better than a cure. Um, out of curiosity, Roxanne, when you mentioned a values affirmation exercise, what is that? Could you share a little bit more about sort of what that process is like? Yeah, so that involved um, going into the prison school system, as I mentioned, and um, incorporating this um, values affirmation exercise ahead of uh, exams um, uh, taking place in, in, in the prison school. Uh, and the idea was sort of to trigger, um, trigger certain values um, and motivations in the prisoners that would help them to do better in those exams and to maybe succeed uh, more in reintegrating into society once they're released from prison. Um, so there's, uh, there's some more information about that in, in the report and, and um, a really fascinating experience and I hope we can scale it up other offices as well and learn more about what, what works. Yeah, priming, um, you know, as a, as a technique, I think is a really interesting one. It reminds me of research um, 
around stereotype threat and how you know, before examinations you can um, share statistics about how you know women perform just as effectively on average as men in disciplines like math, science, and technology, where there might be misperceptions around you know how different genders perform in those domains and how that dramatically impacts um, the resulting test scores. Fatima, I know that you're amidst your doctorate at the moment where your research really looks at the influence of social norms. Um, what are your findings so far and how can our audience look to apply them? Yeah, thank you, Kimberly, for bringing this up. So in my research, I'm interested to look at how social expectations and social norm uh, affect or influence how we perceive our actions and how this perception or self-evaluation also affects subsequent actions. So I'm looking at this in, in two different domains. First, environment and corruption. And I'm interested basically in collective action problems that like have issues with individuals behaving in a certain way that improves the payoff or the benefit of everyone around them and, and their community or in a group. So uh, so I'll give you an example just to make it more concrete. Let's say, for example, standing in a queue and buying an electric car, both of them are collective behavior that improve the benefit of everyone in the society, right? So if you don't stand up in the queue, you will be faced with so many different interruptions. And if you don't buy an electric car, you're not really helping the environment. But the way we perceive our behavior when we stand in a queue and when we buy an electric car is very different. So I bet that you would feel prouder, uh, you would feel happier, you would really uh, feel a more environmentally friendly person when you buy an electric car. But when you stand in the queue, you will not feel the same. And when you don't stand in the queue and you bypass the queue and you try to behave in a, uh, in a very selfish way, you will feel worse than not buying an electric car. I'm trying to see how this, the social expectation, because the social norm is to stand in the queue, but the social norm is not to buy an electric car, would affect how we perceive our moral self-image and our moral self-concept and how this perception would affect different other behavioral spillovers. So another interesting concept other than social norm is behavioral spillover. And this is also another um, uh, very innovative uh, concept in, uh, in the field of behavioral science. So how behaving in a certain context would, uh, would, would um, influence or impact other decisions or other behaviors you do in different contexts. And the most famous type of uh, behavioral spillover that I'm interested in and that is very counterintuitive is moral licensing. So if I buy an electric car, I will feel morally licensed to behave or to transgress or behave negatively afterwards. If I like a page on Facebook on uh, on Black Lives Matter, or if I wear a pink ribbon supporting breast cancer awareness, I'm more likely maybe to feel licensed to behave in an immoral or maybe not donate or not really behave in a very uh, important behavior that could really support the cause. So uh, so my, my research is trying to see why do people engage in negative behaviors spillover by understanding how social expectation and social norm impact how we perceive our actions. And specifically, I'm doing this in, uh, in, the, in the field of collective action problems because they relate very much to the SDGs and the environment and corruption. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit different when I try to run experiments or apply behavioral insights at UNDP or in the field, whereas in academia, uh, 
just of course academia is more rigorous you need to run experiments you need to really uh, look into uh, theoretical concepts and try to add more to the theoretical ground but when it goes to the field they really want to see solutions they want to see behavioral change they want to see a number they want to see the effect size uh, what I'm trying to do in, in academia is really understand more the concept and help me more understand let's say for example how to define social norm when I go to the field social norm is a social norm if everyone is standing in the queue it's a social norm if everyone is not recycling it's a social norm but what academia is bringing to my experience is to understand how to measure social norm so so let's say sometimes social norm what is descriptive or what is common is not really based on social expectations it could be based on moral judgment it could be based on religious and religion convictions so when, 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 this is what I like when I go to the field and when I go to academia. I try to take the best from, from both, yeah. Yeah, and when you're translating those insights and approaches and measurement techniques, have you come across any common misconceptions about behavioral science that you'd like to dispel? This is really a question for both of you. Um, what do you wish people knew about the discipline? Uh, well, from my perspective, um, one thing is that while, while there's certainly a lot of overlap between the two, people do tend to confound behavioral science with human-centered design. Um, and of course, what differentiates behaviorally informed interventions uh, from just good design is the measurement part, um, right? Uh, so the other thing is that measurement ideally shouldn't be one-off. I, I feel like a lot of um, pilots, be, uh, behaviorally informed interventions do tend to be more one-off and not do any long-term um, uh, measurement. Perhaps it's it's more costly, um, but uh, we should be measuring over longer-term horizons, ideally, to see if behavior change is sustained um, or if we need to be iterating on measures over time. So, in short, there's there's some work to be done on clarifying what BSI is and and is not. Uh, and I like the acronym that Cass Sunstein talks about. Um, CIC kick, uh, so which stands for checklist information sharing and capacity building, uh, and the checklist part of it is really um, let's have a checklist that clarifies for people what is um, behavioral science, um, and 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 what is it not. Absolutely, um, what do you think? For me, I have two misconceptions. So for the past maybe five years, I've been involved in so many different activities, projects, initiatives, and whenever I try to explain what behavioral insights is, the first reaction is, yeah, this is a communication tool, or this is a marketing tool, or this is manipulation. And I think this is a big misconception because this is a scientific discipline. So we're using science, we're using psychology, and it's, it's been there for so long. And it just applies, brings maybe psychology on the table and bring psychology into economics, into public policy, into development, and so forth. And what we do is more than just communication. So maybe the nudge at the end, or putting a sticker, or adding a sentence to the to the letter, tax letter, maybe this could be seen as communication. But there's a big process going on uh, behind the scenes. So there's a behavioral map, there's a behavioral diagnosis, understanding the different biases, uh, trying to, to see what works, what doesn't work, running scientific ex rigorous experiments, running statistical analysis. It's not just 
in marketing or improving the communication. And the second misconception is people coming to us with big, big, big macro lever challenges and try to say, okay, I want to uh, solve gender issues and bring gender equity uh, like in this organization, or I want people to become, uh, want women to be uh, leaders or whatever. So I think this, the, the misconception is trying to apply behavioral science into macro challenges and not really focusing on the individual level behavior. So what we do as behavioral scientists is we zoom in and then we try to really look at individual behavior and take a persona or a journey of a certain persona and do a behavioral map and try to really, and one experiment could be just to intervene with one specific behavioral change. So it's very important when we want to apply or embed behavioral insights in UNDP project or any other project is to really define the objective and the goal. So, oh yes, maybe we're solving gender equity. We're trying to reduce violence and extremism, but we have to be very realistic in terms of what this tool will bring on the table. So we will change a specific behavior. We will increase the uptake, let's say, for example, of the recycling bins by, by this much. And this would help if we roll it out with improve waste management. So really communicating this very well to our counterpart, to our beneficiary and to people we're working on is very important. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. And um, I, the, all of those small changes really do ultimately ladder up to a much larger change, which I think illustrates how you know, bringing behavioral science expertise in early to ask different questions and, and to probe in different directions can really lead to, to dramatically different outcomes. Um, and I think that behavioral science now is, you know, having, um, you know, an opportunity to, to play on a larger stage than it ever has been before. I know that your teams have, you know, run a fantastic behavioral science week as part of um, you know, the UN innovation agenda, also that the UN Secretary General released a guidance note on behavioral science. Um, you know, Richard Thaler, when he was speaking um, you know, in discussion with your colleagues, seemed to be pinching himself that uh, you know, when they initially wrote Nudge, um, himself and Cass Sunsu, they never expected to be you know, sat there discussing with the UN how to put all of this into practice. So it, it feels that we're you know, at a, a threshold moment um, but it would be great to hear from both of you now that we've discussed a little bit about behavioral science in practice. Now, um, you know, moving towards the theme of you know how to advance the discipline. What is the next frontier for behavioral science at the UNDP, from your perspective, and then also the field at large? I might throw this one to you, Roxanne, first. Sure. Thanks, Kimberly. Um, so the. The UN Secretary General's guidance note that you just mentioned, it's, um, it's a real push, I think, for UN entities to apply behavioral science, both in our programs and in our internal administrative processes. So it's really encouraging that this has been uh, taken up at the highest level in the UN system. And, and do have a look at the, the note. Maybe we can post it in the show notes as well, um, Kimberly. Um, I do think we need to do better uh, at making it easier for colleagues to integrate behavioral science principles. We can't expect people to just take it up. So there's probably some work to be done to integrate it more indirectly also into our existing planning and monitoring cycles. Uh, and I think we should be looking at finding ways to combine um, 
various methodologies that we use that I think are, are quite complementary. Uh, and I think you alluded to this earlier, Kimberly. So behavioral science, design thinking, futures thinking, systems thinking, uh, they're all approaches we use on a regular basis and they do reinforce each other in, in more ways than one. And I think we could um, come up with some really nice um, toolkits combining all those. I look forward to seeing those toolkits. I think that they'll ha they'll really help to sort of move the agenda further. Um, Fatima, what, what do you think? So for me, I I just remembered what Richard Taylor said when he won the Nobel Prize. He said, behavioral science will be a success when we no longer call it behavioral science, when it's embedded in each and every activity and in the way governments are doing business. And when it comes to NDP, I see a lot of potential already since I graduated in 2017 up until now. Like when, when back then, it was an untapped, it was a new field. Governments were still trying to embed or uh, apply this new uh, insights. But now I can see each and every country office, at least in our region, in the Arab region, trying to run an experiment, pilot a study, and embed behavioral insights into their projects. Uh, so I see a lot of potential, and I've, I believe, as Roxani said, uh, a, a good factor is that UNDP is, works at the heart of governments. So our country offices works with partners in the governments, and this is a big added value. And we work on very different uh, SDGs, so we work on gender, corruption, environment, and all of these uh, projects could have... Uh, entry for for behavioral for behavioral science and I see also behavioral insights at UNDP moving more into organizational change management especially at the public sector at the public sector to improve public service motivation and public service delivery yeah it's um, sometimes overwhelming the number of use cases for behavioral science but I, I think that you're absolutely spot on that you know it's it's equally relevant for internal and external um, actors and there's different ways that we, we can influence those different groups to you accelerate um, our progress towards the sustainable development goals um, there have been so many interesting themes that have come out of this conversation thank you both from you know, discussing how to distinguish behavioral science from other disciplines but equally showing how they can be mutually reinforcing, uh, to really focusing in on defining the problem, um, to unearth local context, uh, unearthing insights about the local context that are actionable, um, and then also building capacity to make sure that deploying behavioral science is easy within organizations. Um, before we log off today, um, I would love to hear from both of you if there are any resources that you would point our audience to if they're keen to learn more about your work um, and your approach to, to behavioral science as a discipline? Yeah, so to keep uh, following and engaging with what the UN is doing on behavioral science, I'd recommend signing up for the UN Behavioral Science Group. It's set up by the UN Innovation Network, so you can join uh, from their website. It's open, of course, to UN staff, but also to externals as observers. Uh, and they also have a, a Twitter account now that you can you can follow. Um, uh, Kimberly, you, you mentioned um, UN Behavioral Science Week that took 
took place um, recently, hosted by the UN Innovation Network, um, with sessions by 15 UN entities, including um, sessions that we hosted on the PV and entrepreneurship work that I talked about um, on this podcast. So um, do also check out the recordings from that week. Uh, maybe we can put the link to that in the YouTube channel in the, in the show notes as well. So uh, those would be my recommendations. I would also encourage uh, everyone to check the KPPC website, the Kuwait Public Policy Center, uh, kppc.scpc.gov.kw, for any news related to KPAL and any other projects that they're doing. And also do check the UNDP Kuwait website and our also uh, Instagram and Twitter accounts for more news on what the office, the Conquer office is doing in terms of behavioral science as well as other activities. So thank you. There you have it. Thank you both so much for for your time and for your expertise and sharing it with us today. Um, are there any last words for the Obehave audience? Uh, just to say thank you um, so much for having us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure uh, chatting and, and hopefully some of the uh, audience will be inspired to look at applying behavioral science to, um, to all sorts of areas linked to sustainable development.